Welcome to Feels Like Healing with me, Al Lewis. A podcast where I talk to artists about how creativity has helped them process their grief. The reason I'm making this podcast is because when I was 21, I lost my dad to MS. That seismic moment in my life made me decide to become a singer-songwriter. I'd been making music before that point, but never considered it a life choice or as a career. However, after the death of my dad, creativity became a solace for me and a way I could express both my joy and my pain. It made me feel alive in the very moment when I was confronted with the ephemeral nature of life and the devastating reality of loss. So I wanted to talk to other people who've ended up in the creative world, but who've also experienced loss, to see whether they have similar stories of why they got into creativity or whether they were already creative people and just happened to suffer grief. I hope during these conversations that I will come to better understand grief and why it makes us feel how we feel and do what we do. This is Feels Like Healing. Hello and welcome to the second half of this special episode of Feels Like Healing, recorded live at St John's Church in Cardiff, and my guests were Cari Saleri, Hannah Daniel and Gavin Porter. In the first half of this conversation, Caris Aleri had told us on the day that she was starting to write her one-woman show Lovecraft, not the sex shop in Cardiff, her father had received the news that he'd been diagnosed with motor neuron disease. Fast forward then to the opening of Lovecraft at the Wales Millennium Centre in Cardiff, and her father is in the audience, wheelchair-bound, watching on as a proud dad. We rejoin the conversation now as Caris talks about taking that show up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. You then took the show up to Edinburgh, am I right, just mm. after he'd passed? Well, no, first, I went up to Edinburgh, he was still alive. Um, and that's the thing with motor neuron, it's as long as a piece of string, you don't know. There's, you can't predict anything around it. It's terminal, but it could be, you know, Stephen Hawking lived decades with, with this condition. So... Dad had gone to hospital because the house was no longer safe for him until we set it up for the right machinery and with the right care system. And, um, and then I was going to go to Edinburgh Festival and return within 28 days. Um, it was difficult leaving him because I saw the decline. You know, he was so used to taking care of other people and being the provider and then all of a sudden people having to wash him, all those things that hit his pride. And, and I just saw the... His, the hairs on his arm become white suddenly and I was like I think he's in a death process and, and nobody was talking about it because nobody knows like nobody knows with motor neuron there's you know with other things you can kind of predict stuff so I, I told him I just think I want to leave you and he's like what are you going to do just sit there and watch me for 28 days and you know I'm just I'm just going to be here sitting down just go you, you've worked so hard it's brilliant, just go, do your thing, enjoy yourself. So I went up and uh, it was really hard to enjoy myself, but I tried, I was doing these shows, but I, my brain was very much at home, um, texting him constantly. And then, the very last, and, and then one day he wasn't texting me back and that was really strange. And I phoned mum and he's, she's like, oh, there's just carers in. And then I just felt weird. And then the following morning, she rang to say he was gone. And for me to come home, and I went home. Um, so were you in Edinburgh? I was in Edinburgh, yeah. yeah. I'd only I'd done about five shows at that point, and flew, flew back. And 
you know, it was incredible. It was majestic, you know, like he was such a part of a community. So was my mother. My mother was plugged in, you know, chairwoman of everything. So the house is like 10 different people every hour. It was just constant, constant from 9am until 6pm, her pals and then my pals arriving with wine. So it was just a real assault of, but so much love. I mean, that's the thing, that's so much energy. It's, I remember my friend David telling me there's such a euphoric stage in that time. Like, you're so, you're reflecting so much on how amazing they were, you know, if you're lucky enough that they were that brilliant person. And, and, and everyone's giving their stories and it's so buoyant. It's incredible. And then of course, um, my, my producers, they, and they were like, it's up to you what you want to do, whether you want to go back at all or whether you don't want to go back at, at all. You know, like, it's up to you. Um, but we're not going to let anyone else have that space. It's for you. We're going to keep it, which is just psychologically really kind and wonderful of them. And then it was Rian Glyde, my friend, well, our friend, who said, you know, what, what are you going to do after the funeral? Because after the funeral, it gets really tough. Mm. It's just so quiet. Mm. And... You know, you have this show which is about love, which is about society, um, that heals people, that gives people so much knowledge and love and, and support and tools. You can, and so what I did, so this is the first instance I suppose I wrote about grief. I wrote about what had just happened and how our communi community came together into the show. And so, so I you, just you tweaked the show. I tweaked the show right. because the show was about my life. It was about what was happening in my life, and now this had happened to my life, and I wasn't going to just ignore it. So if I was going to go back to finish what I'd started, which is the last three days of the Fringe, I was going to put Dad in there and honor him, but honor the society, the power of love of a community and of friends, and it all, you know, it was just all underlined by that time. And it was amazing, I, you know, it was, sometimes I look back and I think, that was mad. <laughs> um, there's a recording of it on Summerhall Radio because Summerhall was the venue. So I listened back to it the other day and I, it's so raw. I'm two days from the funeral. My mother's with me and, uh, and I have, yeah, it was such an interesting thing. But I had so much, it was such an overwhelming loss. He was such an incredible man. I could wait to share my love and my pain with everyone. Yeah. Do you feel, yeah, you felt compelled to go and do that. There was no part of you who thought, actually, I'm just going to stay at home. No. no. I think people, the odd person went, are you sure? And I was like, get out of my way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, I want to share this. I have to, I need to. I don't know what it was. And it was the most, I get this euphoria just propelling me. If somebody would have set that out to me, would you, if your father was to die, would you go back? I was like, I'd be like, no, never. Or how can you predict anything? But I couldn't stop myself. There's a section in your book where you talk about this moment and the, the aftermath of, of going up to Edinburgh and, mm. and performing. Would you mind reading that for us? Yes. Also, this, the book is in Welsh, so I'm really happy that you asked me to translate this. It's a chance for me to edit. <laughs> <laughs> The waffle out of there. <laughs> I had a newfound energy when I reached our flat in Morningside. Back in my big rickety bedroom with an even ricketier piano against the wall and my not so rickety mother never too far from my side. I settled down and thought, as Dad would say, come on Evans, pull your socks up, 
You've got a job to do. Determination flooding every cell in my body. It was only then I understood that I hadn't realised how much of the element of the unknown around my dad's illness was affecting me when I was there prior to his death. At that time, I didn't possess any urgency to focus on the job because my mind was worrying about something far, far more important to me, my father's unpredictable decline. The first night back in Edinburgh Festival was electric, possibly the most beautiful show I ever did. Each ticket had sold, and so many friends had made the long journey to Scotland to show their support. A testimony in itself for what the love of a community is and looks like, the whole point of the show. I wanted to drown the room with love and make people realise the vast importance of their roles as individuals in their societies and within their communities, for it is possible for us all to bring a little bit of my daddy, David Owen Evans, to the world. Hannah, I'm going to move on to you now. Um, so when I left the conversation with you, you uh, had committed to be being a writer as well as an actress. Walk us through the idea behind Burial, which is the short film you made about your, your feelings of grief. And what was it like to, to be putting this onto screen? Like, what was the, did you feel excited about doing that? Or were you nervous about sharing this to the public? Or what was the thought process at that time? I remember feeling very nervous when it, um aired on television. I hadn't thought about how personal a story it was, weirdly, as I'd been writing it with Georgia. I mean, we'd talked about it the whole time, of course, and... How long did it take to write? We, we wrote it in 2018 and shot it in 2018, but it didn't come out until 2020. Um, but Georgia and I had started writing together previously and we'd made a short film beforehand and we'd, we were developing another idea and blah, blah, blah. But there was this huge kind of elephant in the room that, we, that I needed to write about, basically. And Georgia's a brilliant writing partner. She's a real whip-cracker. And she basically stopped messing about and just sat me down and was like, right, this is what we're going to... We're going to write about it. How should we do this? Like you were saying, Karis, about that kind of euphoria, it's almost frenzied and, and it has to be channeled into something, which, I, you know, which is why I think we've all found creativity to have been so, so helpful. There's a, you know, there, there's a feeling of uselessness in grief and, and feeling out of control. And so finally being able to channel that and harness that and mould that into something slight, slight, you know, one, one level removed was, um, of course, unsurprisingly, really cathartic. I wrote it like that. We redrafted, obviously, but it was, it was written very quickly. It came very easily. Um, and then... And then we came to shooting it, and we cast myself as triplets, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, multi-talented or megalomaniac, Al, you know? Um, <laughs> um, and so it was a challenge, you know, we had a small budget. We made it with Film Cymru, it was like, you know, first short kind of initiative. It was amazing and brilliant and such, but such a baptism of fire for me and Georgia, who had never directed a film before. 
I was playing bloody triplets. Um, <laughs> but we had an amazing crew of people who just were like, right, we're just going to have to get on board with this or it's never going to happen. Um, yeah, and also there's a huge fight scene in it where the triplets fight each other with a toilet brush and a fire extinguisher. And so for the makeup designer, it was an absolute, I mean, it was a challenge. Because um, it, was, it was chaos, but quite fittingly, you know, because yeah. it was a film about the chaos of grief. Um, and is, we, it, is it quite autobiographical in that sense, in terms of the, the, the journey that the triplets are going through? Is that a lot absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. It's the identity crisis. Basically. And I, but, I, but I hadn't realised it. I was like, I think they should be triplets. And I think they should be, like, all, like, quite different. But, like, they're all trying to, like, get at the same thing. And George is like, mm-hmm, just write it down. I think... So did you, when you, you, said, you, know, you said it happened quickly, you wrote it really quickly, do you feel like almost it was spewing out of your subconscious rather than you were constructing it um, deliberately? Well, I think the, the panic I was, I was in, and I learned this in hindsight after being able to kind of scribble out burial, was you touched upon it earlier, Gavin, when you were talking about this, the importance of ceremony. And my dad's funeral, you know, there was a euphoria in, in building up to that. And I was kind of excited, weirdly, and, you know, all these strange and, like, unexpected emotions. And then it was over, and I had a huge panic that that wasn't enough. And that actually, you know, that that... And it kind of marked the end. And, and that, that we hadn't actually given him enough space in that funeral, and we hadn't said what, everything that we needed to say. And I was in this frenzy. And actually, what... The end note of the film, I came to realise, was that, you know, all of these, the three, three sisters or the three facets of the same person or of the same man are all fighting to keep their version of this person alive. And I'm one of three siblings, so that might be something as well. You know, we all had our idea of, of my dad and we'd meet up on his birthday or on, on death anniversaries and... They were lovely, and it was lovely to have us all together, but I was, in hindsight, trying to control the narrative of my dad because, you know, this was how I wanted him to be remembered. And, and what the film says, I hope, is that, you know, you, you know, it's never the end, really. You can't wrap it up nicely and pop, pop, pop it in a box and leave it there, you know, what it does. And, and even reading the Vogue article or watching Burial, I've changed since then. My, my grief process has changed since then. I've evolved since then. So they are still evolving. Their memory is evolving with us as long as we keep talking about them. Can people hear, for the, for the listeners of the podcast, uh, a little clip from, from Burial? Next thing you know, he's disappeared into the toilet. Mum thought he was spewing, but I knew he was up to something. Wasn't getting enough attention, was he, funny fucker? And you, my father, there on that sad height. He had that look in his eye walking in there. Fuck this. This one's for you, Pops. Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. And then out he came. Do not go gentle. Singing Mavano at the top of his lungs. Ah, with a toilet brush wedged up his ass. It's 
not what it looks like. Listeners will have to go to the BBC <laughs> iPlayer to fully appreciate that scene. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Um, Gavin, um, how important was it for you to tell your story and to tell your community story in terms of um, representation and also, like you say, that there's a unique way to grieve in Butte Town. That, like you say, different communities do it in a different way. And, and I was really um, moved by these people were telling their own stories, weren't they? You, you picked actors, you, you picked people who weren't even actors, didn't you? Um, and was that important for you to have that voice of Butte Town, whether they were professional actors or not? I'm fortunate that I'm in a position where I can provide opportunities for other people. So the, most of the people in the, in the show had never done any theatre before. Some, some had, and that was important for us to be able to hold the space and make, if someone was flapping, there were people who were more experienced. But there was musicians who I thought were super talented. Uh, there was a uh, uh, funeral director, Maureen, uh, who used to be a disco dancer, so I, sh I knew she was a performer. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, she, she contacted me and said, oh, you know, my son's an actor. I think he, he might go for the, so there was a casting call. And I said, come. And then, she, so she came and I gave her one bit of direction, which was to, um, instead of walking, leading the procession, do it like a dancer. And she took that direction. I thought, she's amazing. You know, and from that, uh, she was in it. Um, and also, like, because I was using my conventions of documentary theatre making. Documentary making, which is a collaborative process, isn't it? I'm not Louis through, I don't put myself in the documentary. So it was always going to be me finding ways of telling other people's stories. Uh, and the process was, after the third day of just getting to know each other, I interviewed everyone. And then I, and then I edited those interviews. And I, again, I, I started with the opening question, what song would you play at your funeral? To, to get deeper into some of the more deeper conversations. And through the editing, I thought, okay, Maureen, for example. She tells a story about when her mum, when she first realised her mum was, you know, really ill. So an ambulance came to take her to hospital. And before the ambulance, uh, before she got in the ambulance, she took one last look around the house. And Maureen said, that's when I realised she was taking one last look around. Uh, so through the editing, that's what I, that's what that part landed with me, and then I found a way to kind of theatricalise that, you know, with, with, with Maureen. So uh, I was having loads of late nights and early mornings because with Maureen, because because I was inventing the process. Some people had to trust me. Some people had to go along with it. I could envisage the the, the final piece, but other people couldn't. Because Maureen hadn't performed before, she was quite nervous about it, but she wrote a poem as also as part of her, uh, the, the casting thing. So I knew she was interested in writing poetry. And I woke up about half past two in the morning during re in rehearsals and I was thinking about uh, Bill Withers and how he constructs songs, you know, so Grandma's Hands. I thought, okay, Grandma's Hands. And then something, 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 Grandma's Hands. So I said the next day to Maureen, this is what we're going to do. You're going to write a poem. And here goes, she took, she took one last look around and then she saw the pictures on the wall, she took one last look around, and then through that little uh, prompt, she wrote a poem that brought tears to, to, to people's eyes. And the other thing I wanted to mention as well, like we had a rule, the rule was like, don't, don't act. And then like, today I might have a monologue that I'm gonna tell you, but tomorrow I might feel like, you know, it was too much for me to do it, yes, I'm not, I'm not even gonna say it today, today I wanna talk about something else, so there was always, uh, yeah, that thing, and I think that's what, 
what kind of came across. And on each night, for example, Maureen would, give the, would say that poem, and she got a really quite a big family. So on each night was different members of the family. So, of course, it was, she would say it in, in, in a way, and it was received in, in, in a way. And we spoke about, yeah, be real in your, in your emotions at that time. Uh, and like, I think that's kind of why, that's one of the things of, of why it worked, really. Definitely, uh, you could definitely tell, and uh, that the actors, as they were telling their stories, there was a there was a depth to it that didn't feel like they were reading a line. And oh. do you think uh, putting Butte Town on the stage like that was that an important thing for you to represent it? Yeah. with the National Theatre of Wales. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't want to compare myself to Spike Lee, but what? most of this, well, but <laughs> why not? Isn't it? Why not? <laughs> no, but like you know, if if you look at a lot of the most of the stuff that I do is is part like. I'm a product of, of my community. My family have been there for 110 years or whatever. Mm. I was born there and I still live there. So a lot of the stuff that I, even like my, um, my value systems and everything is born out of the community. So a lot of the stuff that I make is, is about the community, you know? And I think there's uh, a richness of, of stories, a richness of talent. As we know, not, not all of that talent has had the opportunity uh, to, to, to to be on stages, uh, to be commissioned by National Theatre Wales or, or others. And like I say, part of my being is if I can, if I can, I've managed to get my foot through the door, it's bringing as many others with me as possible is, is, is something I kind of, I hold dear to my heart, really. So I'm going to fast forward to today and, and to where we are now. And Hannah, you alluded to before about how you looked at yourself in burial and you think of yourself now as being different and your grief has changed. So, Karis, you released a memoir that we just heard a clip from, talking about everything that we've discussed about losing your dad and losing your best friend. And you allude in that about the healing power of Mother Nature mm -hmm. and how reconnecting yourself to Mother Nature has been a big part of your healing. Mm. Um, so, as you look at yourself today, I'd look, like to know what your relationship is with your grief and where you think it'll take you in the coming weeks, months? And do you see yourself using it creatively again or do you feel like the, the memoir was the closing of that chapter? I've written several songs. It's really funny, considering the amount of comedy songs I've written around my pain, I've written everything I've written around my grief has been zero lols. It's not been funny at all. It's been very spiritual and you know, accessing that side of me and I'm very happy to. I'm not very, I don't like to box myself creatively. I like to explore and wholeheartedly explore all the different um, facets of myself. Um, so I've, I've written several songs around my grief. Um, I, I think I've, Many that I haven't shared. I've probably got about 20 songs. Mm. Um, Are you planning on releasing them? I've released, I've released a couple of them. There's uh, one I did for National Theatre of Wales when I was working with you, Gav, on, called Go Tell the Bees, Dud No Love and Hide, which is the title of my book. And then there was Only Leave Love Behind, I, um, I released beginning of this year as well. Um, all tying in grief and nature, yeah. um, connection to nature. Um, is the, is so that's been a huge part for you then? Yes, yes. A huge part of my healing was understanding the circle of life and, and where we are in nature and how it all, it's this circle and, and, and 
going back to the trees um, and, and I've really, really deeply connected with nature through lockdown, of course. And without that, without our societies and communities to turn to, that's where I felt, found my solace. It's an, it's an interesting one with me in grief. I've, um, I've recently started therapy uh, because I had a, a car crash over Christmas time, which really brought my um, a, a huge existential crisis along. It's just made me revisit my grief because, it's, because it was my first trauma since losing dad. My first direct trauma that something's happened to me since losing him. And he wasn't there to comfort me. So. Although I've processed a loss that he is physically not here in the world anymore, I hadn't processed what my life means without him being in it anymore. And that's an entirely different thing. So I'm still on a journey. This is, you know, I'm almost five years in and I can't imagine it ever stopping to teach me. And inspire you, do you think? And inspire me, absolutely. Um, do you find that... Was the writing of the book, was it, was it cathartic? Did it, feel, oh, yes. did it feel like something you needed to do? Yes, it was, I wrote it pretty fast and it, it was a privilege to, to revisit all the memories, the, the, the good, the difficult, the nooks and crannies of your brain that you think you've forgotten, you haven't forgotten them, they're all still there. And then I realised, you know, okay, I'm in this position where I've been published to write this book but journaling, I would absolutely, for anyone going through anything, to just reflect, write, write all this stuff down. And it was so healing. I was going to say, but did you find that necessary almost, like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And especially, you know, about my friend as well, because we lost him just before lockdown. We hadn't gone through the first. Uh, we lost him in, at the end of... 2019 so we hadn't had the first birthday without him the first we hadn't communally grieved him uh, you know we'd had the funeral but then none of us saw each other so we didn't have the markers the time markers that you need to process the the physical losses of, of a person they had they weren't there um, so to revisit his story and the decline of Tristan that really, really helped me process that he wasn't there because I hadn't, I hadn't. So yes, I, um, yeah, even though it's a book, anyone listening, um, write, the, write your things down, write your life down, process it with yourself. You, you see yourself outside of yourself and you can help yourself as a friend. You see yourself as a friend and you can help yourself in that way. Diochawawr, Karis, thank you for... Um sharing sharing your story and letting us into that world and i'm sure that your dad would be very proud of of where you are now and how open you are with with everything um gavin i'd like to ask you um having made circle of fifths now a show that deals so openly in grief and loss do you do you feel that it's changed your outlook on loss and bereavement has it changed how you think about uh, people you've lost and looking ahead does it 
Do you think you'll use it in something new that you'll make? Uh, I think the show was useful for me to process what happened to my uncle. Uh, I think the, re the reason I called this circle of fifths, I'm not a musician, but this is my understanding of the, the theory, uh, is that notes work in harmony, innit? And even though I'm not a musician, I understand when notes are out of harmony, yeah? Mm -hmm. So the, the reason I call this circle of fifths is I feel the same way about death. At the moment, I'm happy. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm harmonious. Unfortunately, because it's inevitable, I'm going to grieve again because someone's going to pass away, could even, unless it's me who passes away. And then there's going to be a disharmony. And over, over time, there'll be a new harmony again, won't it? So, that, so kind of, that, that was the, uh, the theory behind why I, called it, why I called it. And yeah, like, what am I trying to articulate? I'm trying to articulate is that it's never over, is it? Mm. Like, that was just a moment in time. It was a really beautiful moment. I had some really amazing uh, comments. I cried for five weeks, literally, because I was holding other people. I was holding other people's stories, and I was asking them to share their their moments of grief. Uh, some people in the show left because it was too much. Some people it unlocked something, and they were floods of tears were coming out. And some people, a couple of people, said to me, uh, "And I'm only sh I'm not sharing it to, to big myself up. I'm just sharing it because it was a, a fact of the thing." Now they they said I, I couldn't go to my nan's funeral, and I was like going to my nan's funeral and a few people said that it felt like mm -hmm. cathartic for the for the audience as well so that was like a uh an extra bonus i hadn't even even considered like you know well I, I can fully attest to that it being a cathartic experience i really enjoyed the play and um i wish you all the best in your future endeavors whatever they may be hannah i'm going to finish with you and your situation today where where does gr grief sit in your world? You, you said that you looked at yourself there in burial and, and felt very different now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, I just, I'm very, uh, yeah, more actually reading the article where you feel like you've nailed it. You're like, oh, this is what grief is. It's like, oh no, this has happened since then. And I would say you were pretty close with that a, article. It was, it it's was. A, yeah, it's a, but I think even in the article, I do say, you know, you don't, it doesn't go away. You just learn to live alongside it like a shit neighbour. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have a cup of tea over the wall yeah. and sometimes you're bashing the wall or they're bashing yours, you know. It's been 11 years soon in February, which is some time of process. And I think what I had reached by making that film was not pretending to be okay, because that's not good. And actually just to lean into the scars and accept that that is, you're changed after losing somebody close to you, I think. Um, and there's no getting away from that. And actually just accepting the new version of yourself with its kind of, with its scar tissue. And, um, and, and thankfully, art comes from those places, you know, historically. And so, you know, if there's, God, find, find the benefits, <laughs> you know, so. Do you think your grief and, and your dad will creep into things you write? Absolutely, I find that in everything I write, there's a father-daughter relationship, there's a long lost dad, or, you know, it's, it's hidden in guises, but there's always, I, you know, I was, I looked like my dad and I, you know, I reread his eulogy years after he died that his friend had put in an envelope for me and I hadn't opened it. And, and the, I, it was kind of astounding how much of me I could 
here in it. And I've had children in the last few years, and my eldest has my dad's, my dad's name was Emmett, and Morris's middle name is Emmett, and he looks like my dad. He has the same temperament as my dad, God help us. Um, and, you know, so there's, I'm, I'm re... And, and I'm re-remembering parts of my childhood that I'd forgotten. I'm playing, I'm, I'm kind of finding creativity in other ways through my kids where I'm singing songs that I'd forgotten that my dad sang to me and revisiting places that he used to take me. And, and it kind of, you know, there's a kind of celeb celebration in that that is, that, you know, that can come from the creativity that comes from grief, which I'm... And is creativity still, still solace for you as well? Absolutely, of... and I think, yeah, so, yeah, and, and I'm kind of comfortable, and I know, I'm, I know where that is now, and, and I can access it, and I can go to it, and I can turn to it, and I know that that's what I need, yeah. and it, that has been something that I've learned through grief, so I'm really, you know, that's, there's that to be, to be thankful for. It's weird, isn't it, almost being thankful for grief, or, or, or <laughs> yeah. appreciating, appreciating the things that it teaches you. It feels weird that you feel grateful for that sometimes, isn't it, and you think... I've learned this because of this horrible thing, but it's made, it's made me understand myself better or given me a, a, a strength that I didn't think I had, which is yeah. weird that you're grateful for something because of something so sad. Yes, yeah, it's kind of in our human nature, isn't it? It's just, well, at least, yeah. at least we made a film. It's a bit like Thank you, Hannah, for, for sharing your story. And... Um, yeah, and I think your article in Vogue was, was beautifully written and, and hit the nail on so many aspects of what I felt as well, losing my dad. So, um, yeah, do well. Yeah. Thank you. If we could all give a round of applause to our guest, please. <laughs> For, for listeners of the podcast, I will be putting links in to all my guests' work that we've been discussing so you can follow them. Uh, I've been Al Lewis. This is Feels Like Healing. Please make sure to subscribe and rate this podcast as it will help to spread the word about Feels Like Healing. Nostar, dechwaor. <laughs>